right. Um, so thanks everybody for joining us this evening at the M Pavilion. Um, I'm Jen Lynch. Um, and Emily Wong and I, um, we co-chair the Cultivate Committee, which is a part of the Australian Institute of Landscape Architects. Uh, we're really excited for this evening's conversation. We've been scheming it for over a year. Um, before handing over uh, the mic to Kate and the panel, we wanted to make a few acknowledgements. Um, firstly, to acknowledge country and the traditional owners of this land, um, the Yalakit Willem. The Yalakit Willem are part of the Bunurong, one of the five major language groups of the greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors, um, and their elders past, present, and to the future. We also wanted to thank um, Sarah and the folks at the M Pavilion for generously hosting us here tonight, um, Ayla for their enthusiastic support for our research endeavors, and to our speakers for sharing um, their work and their ideas. So without further ado, hand it over to Kate Dundas. Right. Hello, everyone. Oh, we're going to clap. <laughs> um, well, thanks very much to Jen and Emily for organizing this and for your persistence in trying to get us all in the same room to brief us, which was unexpectedly difficult. <laughs> um, so, and thank you all for coming along. We've got a really good turnout tonight, and it's great to see you all here. My name is Kate Dundas. I'm a landscape architect, one of many uh, up here tonight. Um, and I also co-host a radio show on 3RRR called Greening the Apocalypse. And we're hoping to be able to put this conversation um, onto the radio some point early next year. And listen in on the show. It's Tuesday nights at 7pm. Lots of interesting discussions on deliberative development and other things. So who here knows anything at all about what deliberative development is? Can I have a show of hands? Right, not many people, that's great. So we'll know how, you know how to pitch your conversation now, everybody. Um, so today's conversation is about deliberative development. So we'll learn a little bit about what it is, why it's different from other types of development, what it means for the future of practice as an architect and as a landscape architect, and to think about the, the opportunities it offers for the way that people are able to live together in the future. Um, I have some questions which I might pose later on. If, if none of you are very familiar with what deliberative development is, I think I'll come back to my questions after we've heard from the first speaker. So we're going to hear from four speakers this evening. Um, the first one's going to be Andy Fergus, who's sitting behind me. Andy's going to give us a little bit of a background on what deliberative development is, its context in Melbourne, so some of the projects that are happening at the moment, and potentially some international examples. Yes. Um, and then Bridget, again, we're going to hear a little bit about some particular project examples. I think Nightingale is one of them, um, and what that might mean for consultants in the future. Then we're going to hear from Rodney, who's sitting here to my left, um, Rodney has been, Rodney's from Tract, and in his, he's been involved with particular types of development with merchant builders, which were developed a long time ago, and there's perhaps some lessons to be learned from that type of development and what we're seeing happening at the moment. And then we've got Matt and Nick for Emergent Studios, and they're going to talk about a particular project in Castle, Maine. So often we see these deliberative developments, the Nightingale model, pop up in the northern suburbs, so in the hipster villas of, well, mainly Brunswick. 
So I'm hoping to hear a little bit tonight about what's the, what's the potential beyond the hipsters? What's the potential for everyone else? So I think I'll hand over to Andy. Says she who lives in a hipster suburb. I'm in Preston, <laughs> come on. Hi. Um, so just maybe a quick introduction for myself. So I'm an urban designer at the City of Melbourne. Um, I'm a co-director of Melbourne Archie Tours with Mark, who is somewhere here. Um, I'm also a licensing committee member of Nightingale and a teacher at the Melbourne School of Design. Not high enough. No, not high enough. OK. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about, first, our current development paradigm before we get into deliberative development, because I think we often talk in this context about speculative and deliberative, speculative being the current market model of development and deliberative as the other. I was asked to do about half an hour's worth of talking in seven minutes, so it's going to be much simpler. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but effectively, what we have right now is an interesting phenomenon. For the people older than perhaps 30 in this audience, you will have seen uh, how much Melbourne has changed over the past years. We've had um, continuous economic growth since 1997 after a market downturn in uh, 1991. Um, that has uh, resulted in a significant transformation of our city centre and our inner suburbs. And we've had a, an upswing in residential construction in the multi-residential sector um, on a scale that I'm sure Rodney wasn't anticipated 20 years ago. Um, in recent ABS data, we've passed, again, Melbourne, uh, the number of apartments constructed has passed the number of single dwellings on plots. Now, that's quite a significant statistic because 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we were trying to justify apartments as a housing typology. Now we're having conversations about their quantity and quality. So this, this model we have at the moment, 80% of it is bought by investors. Um, that's been fuelled by good capital gains during this period of economic growth. It's also been fuelled by things like negative gearing. So this model is um, split between sort of foreign investment um, we have very good circumstances for foreign investment in Melbourne, but also through domestic investment, um, through you know, people with multiple properties in their portfolio. Now, this model is all geared backwards from risk, and I guess we often refer to it as kind of risk finance. Now, if I'm a developer and I want to de develop a tower in Southbank, what I do is I make a series of assumptions about my market. I measure five other buildings that have come before me. I work out what to pay back for that site based on this kind of generic low-risk model. I try not to make it too tailored because that will reduce the market who might purchase it. I want to make it the simplest, easiest sell. Not because I'm a jerk, but because that's otherwise I'll go broke. And so you set out to do this, this model of development and effectively you sell, uh, you have a pre-sales phase, you'll sell 30% you know, of the apartments and then you'll commence your construction with that finance. Now... The developer at this point, you know, they, they've got their um, construction finance, they work their way through the development process. Each time the builder lodges a, a progress claim, they pay for that. At the end of the pro project, you get to a point effectively around about practical completion where 70% of the people in your building haven't settled on their, on their apartments, theoretically. So you've got this huge amount of capital expended as a developer. You're geared to the hilt and you're just waiting for that point where the subdivision occurs and you, that's when you make your money back. If the market changes during that time and it changes enough for an investor that it's worth opting out of their deposit rather than settling on the property, the developer's left with nothing. So we talk about this as settlement risk and this is the point in the process where the developer is most exposed to risk. The finance, the design of the project is geared backwards from that point. And that kind of dictates a hell of a lot of our cities, frighteningly. <laughs> so if we think about that as the speculative model, and what that's about is as simple as, you know, speculating on the future value of an apartment when it is subdivided and sold, 
Um, that is kind of the dominant model in our city. Now, if we position deliberative as a counterpoint to that... Just to butt in there, um, yeah. that's, that's what's happening now. Yes. So we're getting generic tower blocks popping up in the city and medium density elsewhere in the suburbs. What actually is... What's wrong with that? I will get to that. Um, <laughs> we, we do have issues in terms of the quality. Do you want me to go, go through that before I get on to deliberative? Um, give us a very short summary of why that's not a good thing and then tell sure. us about why deliberative development is different. So the, the problem is absolutely not one of quantity at the moment in terms of apartment construction. Um, the problem is with quality. Melbourne hasn't had defendable, robust apartment design guidelines uh, put in place during this period of economic growth. What occurred during the downturn in the economy in the early 1990s is the planning regulations were stripped back in the Kennett era. In the central city, for example, in 99, plot ratio was removed, which just at the time didn't matter. But come 2004, 2005, massive amounts of investment, the planning system didn't adjust. So the planning system that we have now, I believe, and others might disagree, was geared up for a period of economic downturn, not to manage growth. So I think there's a real difference there. So when this apartment development that proliferated was sort of, you know, that first in best dress, let's just get it in. But we didn't adjust and go, okay, now we're getting apartments. What are the qualities of separation, privacy, outlook, amenity, ceiling heights, adaptability, connection to the street? Size, bedroom size. numbers. Yeah, okay. size of bedroom. Can you walk around the bed, etc. Okay, so tell us about why deliberative development is different. And what it is? So what deliberative development is, is where a developer, uh, where, where basically you remove the developer from the process or you reframe their role. So deliberative is sort of borrowed from the term deliberative planning where you engage the community. But what it effectively means is that a community might replace the developer in the process and that means they control their own project. So for example, me and you know, four of us pull together a site uh, we put up the capital for that project, we secure finance, we design the project ourselves and we deliver it. And we could either deliver it for six and sell two others to friends or we could build just for ourselves. Um, but what we don't have in that process is actually what's more important than what we do. And what we don't have is a need for marketing suites, expensive graphic design, real estate agents, etc. And that can be up to 25% of the project cost. That amount of money we can either redirect back into affordability within the project investment in sustainable infrastructure, provision of community... There's a range of different ways that that money can be re-spent within the process. So there's an opportunity purely just there in terms of re reconfiguring the way the project works. But basically what it allows you to do is generosity in multi-residential construction, which is all but precluded in market development because of the financial system within which they operate. So it sort of is about financial design. So I'll talk really quickly about where this model has sort of been borrowed from. And, and deliberative development, as we talk about it, could be led by architects. It could be a developer bringing the community in from the outset to co-design their project. It doesn't just have to, have to be a kind of hippie phenomenon. It can be incredibly scalable. Um, but the model, as I've really experienced, has come from my own research since around about 2012 and my experience of Berlin. Um, so Berlin uh, is one of the pioneers in urban Baugruppe, which is, means building group or Baugemeinschaft, building community. And this model has really existed since the sort of 60s and 70s in rural areas. My time is up. Your time is up, Andy. I'm just okay. going to stop you. So <laughs> to summarise, I think what you said is... Great examples in Berlin. Look them up. Great examples, everyone. Well, you can ask more questions at the end. If you want to learn more about what Baugruppen is as an example of deliberative development, then save up your questions to the end. But we've got a lot to get through. So what's happening at the moment is we're seeing bland apartment blocks, 
too many one and two bedrooms designed by developers to sell for profit, whereas deliberative development gets the um, end users, so the people who are going to live there eventually involved from the very beginning. So you get to make your own decisions about what you actually want to have in the house that you're going to live in. Okay, Bridget, over to you. Thanks, Kate. I'm a little bit scared <laughs> after that. But anyway, I'm going to sort of bring it back to the planning element. So I just wanted to offer a quick reminder for what urban planning is and what it should be. So at its core, it's about the interruption of free market mechanisms to shape our city into the most sustainable one it can be for everybody. And we mean that in the ecological, the social and the financial sense. So I wanted, to quare, I wanted to share a really quick story about my experiences working on Nightingale. So I became involved with Nightingale post the VCAT refusal disaster. And about two and a half years ago, I was deep in the process of trying to convince council, council to issue a planning permit for Nightingale 1 on Florence Street. Anyway, it was late at night and I was feeling very, very frustrated. So I sent the council planner an email that said... This development represents everything that your council strives to achieve. It's a development that in three years' time, you and your colleagues will walk past and you'll feel so proud that you were involved in making this happen, and so on. I'm sure you can imagine the rest. She never applied, but in the meantime, I had accidentally CC'd in every single member of the project team. And Jeremy McLeod, the architect and mastermind behind Nightingale Housing, wrote back with just five words, bridge... I fucking love this. <laughs> and what I had done by sending a fairly unprofessional email that ordinarily I should have drafted and probably not sent was detailed what I had always perceived to be as a personal weakness, my emotional involvement to the project. But really, what I had demonstrated was that I, like everybody else involved with the project, am deeply committed to what it represents, not only because it has the potential to reframe the way in which we approach development, but because I'm human... I have emotions that inform my professional opinion and that human element is what is at the core of deliberative development and we seem to have forgotten that and we're not really having that conversation. I know it kind of sounds a bit airy-fairy and idealistic but I'm a little bit scared that we're going to wake up one day soon and realise that we've developed this, developed this completely unsustainable city. And deliberative development is certainly not the complete answer to that question or that problem but it's certainly a piece of the puzzle and it needs to be nurtured, celebrated, critiqued, made better and enabled to be realised more broadly, not just in Brunswick or the inner north. So what are the challenges? And again, remembering I'm a planner, so um, I'm not a landscape architect or an architect, so I'm not going to talk about design detail because we have enough planners in Melbourne interfering with design. So I'm going to focus on the two biggest planning challenges. So the first one is the system itself. So until we have a planning system that truly supports and prioritises the non-speculative model, model and sustainability over car parking or the person that can afford to pay the most for that speculative development, then we're never going to move forward. The reality is it's easier to do something badly at the moment than it is to do something amazing. We've created a system that expects the acceptable and cannot handle the exceptional. Second challenge, we need to have an honest conversation with the community and not pigeonhole them. We've created this dichotomy, you're either pro-development or you're anti-development, you're a NIMBY or you're a YIMBY, and it's so unhelpful. It's not a progressive conversation. They're upset and they have a right to be upset because they've been pigeonholed into being a certain type of person. But the reality is, 
a lot of the time, what these people are objecting to is their city being taken away from them. And the majority of the time, it's not a great development that they're objecting to, but they're put in this hole and the system does not support them. We need to have an honest conversation about how we can move forward, accept that change needs to occur and perhaps bring them into the fold, have the conversation. And that's where the piece of deliberative development or community-led development can really create change. So just to end, if you look at this M Pavilion program or any program of any event in any talk in Melbourne, sustainability, housing affordability, community engagement, they're largely front and centre. And so we're having lots of conversations and that's really, really great. But we need to move forward from there and we need to create action. So I'm going to ask you all to write to your local state or federal member. I'm going to ask you to call them. I'm going to ask you to invite them to your next meeting that you have with clients. I'm going to ask you to join a community group or start a local community group or start your own deliberative housing group because deliberative development needs deliberative action. Otherwise, it's limited in its ability to create change. So the worst thing we can do is be apathetic. We may feel like we don't have the ability to create change, but that's, not, that's just not true. Nightingale is starting to prove that. and We just need all to get together and to start to believe it. Excellent call to action, Bridget. Give her a clap. <laughs> so Bridget and Andy are involved in a project called Nightingale. Um, those who follow the architects on uh, Instagram might have noticed that there's now a Nightingale precinct again in Brunswick. So there's going to be um, seven different buildings by seven different architects, all based on this concept of deliberative development. So getting the future community involved from the very beginning in the decision-making for the projects. Um, Nightingale, yep, learn more about it online, but it is an example of a type of deliberative development and something which is fairly exciting and interesting, but something which is manifesting itself in medium-rise, medium-density uh, buildings in Brunswick, which I think cater to a certain type of audience. Okay, Rodney, over to you. Thank you, Kate. Uh, I've been asked tonight to speak about Vermont Park, which uh, will date me very much. It was done in 1977. It's a cluster house development. It's on four hectares of land, and it's uh, 43 lots. So basically, there are about 540 square metre lots compared to what was around that area of around 1,000 square metres. Now, specifically, I was asked three questions to answer. First, what was the model I, that Vermont Park was using? Now, Vermont Park was the brainchild of merchant builders, and the company I work for is Tract, and we're involved in the planning, landscape, and site planning. And the models that were used were the Reston and the, PU, uh, the PUD developments in the US and the new towns in England in the 1940s and 50s. So it's nothing new, but it was new for Melbourne. At that time, cluster was not heard of. If you wanted to do unusual housing developments, particularly on open land, you had to use strata title. And this is quite peculiar because strata title means you connect every building. And Winter Park was the first one as a strata title. And if you go to Winter Park in Doncaster, the buildings are actually connected by fascia boards, pipes under the ground, and as a result of that, there was a call for a new development form, and this was cluster subdivision. There was only one example of cluster subdivision, which was Vermont Park, because it was too complex. It went back into a strata title approach, and, 
it was modified. And now unusual uh, subdivisions are happening under strata title or something similar to that. So that was the model. The second question that I was asked, was it successful or unsuccessful, or both? And to be objective about it as being involved in the design and the planning of it, I think it was very successful in the sense that it was better use of the land, it protected the site that was there with uh, planting the, the, the pine trees and the, the plantation that was currently there. It provided facilities for the residents, which was unusual for a normal subdivision. It was 43 lots, and it actually had a shared swimming pool communal facility, most unusual for that kind of subdivision. Some of the negatives, uh, body corporate. It wasn't your normal Torrens title. People wanted their land unencumbered, but there were encumbrance because you had to site the building in such a way, you had to use certain materials. And it was the precursor of good design. Can I have some water there, please? Thank you. It was the precursor of good design, and I believe that overrode some of those restrictions. The third question I was asked is why aren't there more cluster subdivisions? Well, the basic one was it was too difficult for people to understand it. It was new, and particularly those people involved in the surveying of it and the laying out. It was, it was unusual. It wasn't a normal straight subdivision of land. And that, that was one of the drawbacks, and that was probably its biggest downfall. But interestingly enough, new developments occurred afterwards that used all the same principles. They just used a different planning mechanism to achieve it. So it was a, overall, I believe it was quite successful in the sense of the use of land. And I, I would strongly advise people to visit it. It's Vermont Park out in Vermont off Burwood Highway. It's a four hectare site and there's 43 lots of subdivision. And I reflected on this presentation tonight my son is involved in new development in the city and he's working on, on the 0.3 of a hectare, 0.3 of a hectare site and he's got 67 houses on it. So think about it. It's one thirteenth the size and it's 25% greater density. So, I mean, that's, that's what's happening with the trend in Melbourne and basically the three things that are causing that trend is the urban growth boundary, which means... There's no further expansion of green acre development. It's going to be infill development. The second one is affordability. The cost of housing in that form is very expensive compared to a medium density. And the third one is infrastructure. Providing new infrastructure on an ageing infrastructure is very expensive. So those three attributes will see a much higher compact city in the future, and we're hearing about that tonight. And I'm sure in the, the next 20 years will be a much higher density of Melbourne. And that's the design challenge. How do you achieve that and still have livability? Thank you, Kate. Thank you very much, Rodney. It was, it's interesting to just reflect upon uh, what happened in Vermont Park and the successful development that occurred there with the cluster housing, the landscaping and the vibe. Um, it's but a very yet, good vibe. Very good vibe. And yet there's only a few examples of those. What we normally see is your traditional suburban quarter-acre plot subdivisions, weatherboard houses separated with fences. Um, it's, 
And then it's just interesting to think that we always flip back to what's normal and easy. I, think at, the I think at the time it was so difficult for people to comprehend. They felt they were going into almost a slum. But today, 540 square metres is considered quite a large lot. And when we designed it, we provided private open space where it was totally protected, you had your private open space. And a lot of it was good design. You had to think about it. There were six different architects worked there, so it wasn't a monotonous development. In 43 houses done by six different architects, people had their choice what house to use. But there were controls. There were guidelines. And at that time, that was seen as quite prohibitive. Today, that would be seen as almost a, a backward step. That's the norm. You have to have amenity that respects your neighbour. That's become the norm. Right. Let's hear about what's happening in Castlemaine. So a different type of deliberative development from Matt and Nick. Thank you. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, my name's Matt. So I'm uh, one half of Emergent Studios. And we've been invited here today to talk about specifically about our project in Castlemaine, the paddock. So I guess more specifically how the paddock can be used as a precedent for a landscape-driven um, residential development. Um, so today, Nick and I will run through the project and the design framework of the paddock and talk about uh, the design outcomes towards the end. So everyone knows uh, Castlemaine has been a, a tree change destination for a number of years now, um, and it's in part because of its proximity to Melbourne and its rail infrastructure and the community um, that exists there. Uh, now, our client um, who lives in Castlemaine told us a story that when he first moved to Castlemaine, there was only five people catching the train to the CBD. So if you looked at that now, you'd be uh, standing on shoulder to shoulder on the platform at 6am. Uh, I just want to make an important note. There's three um, components to this project that are um, really significant and worth considering. One is it's uh, the community that's been built in, which is Castlemaine. Two is the developer itself. They're a husband and wife developer from Castlemaine. And the third point would be the framework that we're designing the project around, which is the Living Building Challenge Certificate. So I guess Castlemaine is evolving as well. It's now becoming a bit of a gateway for younger families to enter the housing market. And that is in part because of Melbourne's um, housing affordability crisis that we're hearing about today. Uh, so who are our clients? Heather and Neil Barrett are our clients out in Castlemaine and the paddock is literally a paddock on their family land. They've owned it for the last 30 years and it's had a significant um, role in their, their family life. Uh, and this next phase of the development, I guess, is testament to, uh, it's testament to their position on sustainability, uh, environmental awareness and their stature in the community. Um, and I think it's really important to note this emotional connection to the site um, and also the community that they're delivering the project in because it, it does form, um, I guess, the foundations of what the paddock is as a project. So what is the paddock? So it's a 27-dwelling community-focused townhouse development with a combination of private title and shared communal space. So the site is uh, it's 1.4 hectares. So 1.4 hectares, 27 dwellings. Um, it's on the fr urban fringe of Castlemaine. Uh, it's on the traditional land of the Jajara Jarawurung tribe. 
and uh, it has an ecological vegetation class of um, remnant box iron bark forests. We have two remnant box iron bark trees. Um, we've got terribly poor soil, and it's been, um, I guess, modified through mining over um, during the gold rush. Um, now, the site itself has a very distinctive topography. It has a basin-like form with a dam in the middle, and we do fall within the Murray-Darling catchment, which is also something that we've been considering. So the the hydrology of the site is such that the water runs through the site into Campbell's Creek, into the Loddon, and then into the Murray. Um, so it's, it's really important to kind of see your site from a, a broader perspective. So what is the LBC? So the brief that we've been given was to design the um, eco-village to meet the Living Building Challenge Certificate. So the LBC is considered the world's most um, rigorous standard for building. It's developed by the Living Future Institute in America and addresses, addresses some of these deficiencies we're hearing about today in the development standards required by local council and government. But I guess more significant for landscape architects and for us and the project is that it, it requires a landscape architect to be involved in the project from the inception. Uh, and this has represented a significant shift in the current housing development practice in Australia. Okay, thanks, Matt. <clears throat> so I thought I'd give a brief overview now of the LBC framework, which we were working to. Um, it's based around 20 design imperatives on which the consultant team, which is us and the um, architects and the civil engineers, work collaboratively towards gaining certification. So the, real, the process is about um, getting that certification. The LBC design imperatives are broadly identified under seven categories. Um, they are place, water, energy, health, materials, equity and beauty. Um, and through our experience on the project, um, I just want to sort of identify the things that we've found most relevant to landscape architectural practice. Um, so the imperatives, um, the first imperative I'll talk about is um, the biophilic environment. Um, while this imperative at first, at first reading seems pitched towards architects striving to bring nature into their buildings, which you'll see um, a lot in the city now um, in certain projects, um, for landscape architects, it provides a useful framework for us to reconsider how projects are orientated to nature and challenges us to become more rigorous in that process. Um, another really important imperative is human scale and human places. Um, so like most projects, we believe this will be key to the success of the project from a social perspective. Um, as always for landscape architects, we're looking to... Um, or the challenges to design human scale spaces... Um, that promote intuitive uses and interactions between people and their environment. So some of this is second nature to landscape architecture. Um, urban agriculture is um, a very important imperative of the LBC and it's, it's really a cornerstone um, imperative. So a floor to area ratio is used to calculate the percentage of the site to be given over to food production. The paddock at 1.4 hectares with 27 townhouse developments equates to 35% uh, of the total area being given over to food production for the inhabitants. Um, once you take out roads and building footprints, this represents a significant challenge with the space. Um, another extremely challenging aspect of it is net positive water. The, the overall goal is to use less water than, you, um, than falls on the land. Um, this imperative requires tight collaboration between civil landscape and architecture but it also rests heavily with the contract of behaviour on the future inhabitants. So it actually needs to be kind of enshrined in some kind of um, uh, 
usage pattern. Um, net positive waste, in a similar way, um, this imperative challenges us to consider material cycles through construction to ongoing community management. And it includes stuff, um, stuff such as material selection, composting systems, um, landscape management, management practices and so on. And then another one that we found really important was um, a beauty and spirit um, imperative. And that really required the development of a, uh, a sort of collaborative narrative between the landscape architects and the architects. And this, um, this really seemed to bring the project together and gave us a language to, um, to speak to. And were the future inhabitants involved in that process too? Not, not so much in the, the construction of the beauty narrative, but they have been involved a lot in the process of the design. So they, they've influenced through workshops a lot of um, the direction that we're going in. Um, so I guess, I guess just from a landscape architect's point of view, um, our, our role has really expanded through our interaction with the LBC. And this... Um, so our expanded role included in this particular project the design of the primary road network... Uh, and car park layout and all the pedestrian networks. We, dis we managed to disperse building mass to allow for incre increased pedestrian permeability. We worked on privacy gradients between private and um, um, social spaces. Um, drainage, drainage and wetland design. Um, a lot of that was for storage for the agricultural zone. Um, development of large-scale terraced agricultural zone itself. And finally, the integration of um, shared infrastructure such as workshops, sheds, electric bikes and flexible recreational spaces. Great. I'm going to stop you there. Have you got one more to go? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so, you might, so basically at the end of this, so you might think that the, the way that LBC is working and um, the imperatives are intrinsic to good landscape architecture anyway. It's kind of what, what we work to. But I think the real benefit of working of schemes like this of... Um, and these kind of uh, frameworks is that it puts landscape architects into the conversation early in the project. So we get, we get buy-in early and we're... Um, and this is a really positive thing, I think, for built outcome. Fantastic. Thank you. be interesting to think about how to apply the um, LBC framework, that spirit of place and connection to land in a high-density environment rather than North Northcote, Castlemaine. <laughs> um, and... It's also, after hearing all of these conversations, it's interesting generally to think about the changing role of the consultant um, in the context of deliberative development. We've got architects acting as developers and mediators, landscape architects acting as um, really embedding the landscape architecture process right from the beginning. And if it was a true deliberative development process, again, it would be acting as that developer and mediator. Um, so my first question is to all of the panel... What could our future role be as consultants if we took ourselves out of being the expert in thinking that we know what people want and into a different realm of deliberation and working really properly with the community and the future residents? Bridget, I'm going to nominate you because you're hanging about. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I feel like it's... It's really challenging because at the moment when you go and speak to the community as a consultant, 
they already have an idea of your motive because you're being paid by someone as the as that's your client essentially. So that ability to um, be honest, to be fresh, to be innovative with your opinion can be really, really challenging if you've been given a parameters of a brief. And you find that a lot when you do work with local council that are potentially very risk-averse and you may have good ideas or um, you can see the community kind of um, gathering together with this good idea. And there is sometimes potential there for a bit of push and pull, but I think that um, more generally the community is quite mistrustful of consultancies and I guess I can't really picture a way in which that couldn't occur unless we saw a big rise in the not-for-profit and advocacy sector in Melbourne and I think there's a huge role for that space to grow and I think that there's a really important linkage there with the community being able to perhaps come on board a little bit more with that sector of so maybe we're seeing the emergence of the downfall of the consultancy and the emergence of the not-for-profit I think the community involvement is at different levels. It's not necessarily at the beginning, but it's the whole process. I'd be very cautious about just saying they show up meeting day one. It's a long term. It's how do they get involved in, say, even laying out their own house? I mean, that, that's becoming more the norm. I think it's about who and when in the process they're engaged. So in terms of still not undermining the expertise of a consultant, but ensuring that they engage at the right stage of the process. So whether it's the provision of options at a key point or you know, aiding decision-making. I think some of the great examples we saw of consultants or architects, which can easily be transposed to landscape architects, in the Berlin context was they're setting up almost a framework of like games. So you set clear rules within which the conversation occurs with the community, the community being the building community, not the broader outside community. And then within those rules, you sort of certain things are up for grabs. So you can't choose your tile, brick or floor, but you can lay out your space differently and you'll pay for that differently. So sort of setting the fixed things in the process within which that occurs, I think is really important. Oh, no, I was just going to say that uh, um, in LBC, um, and that's really what I'm talking through because that's our experience, they... Workshops are sort of embedded within... Um, buyers' workshops are embedded within that process as well. So um, through multiple stages of the projects, we'd be looking at, you know, simple things like composting or, you know, these kind of things that will have a big effect on the spatial outcomes of the project. Um, and they really seem to engage with that quite well and we managed to get a lot of, in, you know, important information through that process. So, yeah, it's quite active. Um, one more question, then we'll hand it over to the audience. What do you think are currently the main barriers for deliberative development to be scalable and take off as the normal process? Car parking. One of the biggest barriers, especially at a, at a suburban scale, because if you look at an aerial of, a, you know, a change area in outer suburban areas, all the design is being dictated by car parking. And that impacts landscaping enormously. And that's car parking rates that are applied through the planning scheme. It's also the way in which they turn around. So if anyone grabs an aerial photo and looks at, like, I don't know, Baronia or Reservoir or some of these areas, what you'll see is you'll see the initial plots on seven, 800 square metres um, and then you'll start to see these ones that are carved up and you see the kind of driveways with the houses laid out. And having worked in a local council many years ago and observed this process, the feasibility study comprises a turning radius analysis 
locate the garages, determine if you can fit a double or a single, design the house backwards, and then erode a rectangle for the communal for the commute, sorry the private open space. And the entire system is driven by: does it still look like a house from the street front? If so, tick. And I think this is a problem: is that planning hasn't engaged with the site plan or the the role of landscape at all in what they can do for these villa units. Okay. Um, and I understand there's something to do with economics and the um, return a bank can expect and the money available to loan for people like Nightingale. So Nightingale raised their funds in a different way to a traditional developer. Can you mention anything about that? Yeah, I can talk about Nightingale. And maybe also we're talking about a couple of different models here. Vermont Park was delivered by a developer with enlightened principles. As I understand the paddock, you talked about a buyer's workshop that is still sold at the end rather than co-financed. Is that correct? Correct. It's a similar model. So yep. There's a developer who's financing it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So there's a developer who's financing the project and people buy into the workshop. Yep. So the buyer's workshops are money down but not a deposit. So they pay to come into the workshop and partake in designing their landscape or their house. Yep. And then the consultant team takes that information away, um, reviews it and addresses it where um, relevant. And then we represent the project back to the buyers group. And if they're still on board, then they put their deposit down yep. and we build the first stage. And then you get the finances up to roll out the rest. It's not dissimilar to Nightingale. And I think it's important to note the spectrum here. So you've got kind of, you know, full speculative developer. You've got enlightened developer, still has to make a profit to finance the thing. Then you've got Nightingale, which is a fixed profit on cost scenario, 15%. Then you've got kind of full community-led development where there is no developer, there is no profit margin. You pay for what you get wholesale and then you go to affordable housing and then you get all your way down to crisis accommodation or homeless housing so there is a full spectrum of housing solutions and we need every tier in a fully functioning um, housing I was going to call it market but I guess provision of shelter for people Um, but so Nightingale's model uses a social impact investment model Um, it's sort of borrowed from the tech world I guess but it uses a a situation where the financiers uh, who have more capital able to put up that capital to buy the site so you're not having to fuss around and build your community while you're looking for a site you've got the money ready to go and then once that um site is purchased, then you engage with a, a wait list. And currently, Mark, how many are on the wait list? 3,000? 3,500 at the moment on the wait list for Nightingale. They're not the all, appetite is there. That's not all real purchases. Every day someone tells me they're on the wait list just because they thought it was fun. Um, so, that, you know, but still, there is a significant appetite for these projects. But what happens is once the site's purchased, then you engage, that's the point at which you can engage that community. They form around a project whether it's Austin Maynard, whether it's Claire Cousins, whatever project suits their needs, what location it's in, and then Runs the project. It. Well, they're determining it. The wait list is determining it, not, not Nightingale. Great. Okay, I might, shall I be the roving mic? Or is there another one? I will be the roving mic. Who's got a question? I'm just going to come up to someone if no one has a question. Yes. I have a question. Um, Just having been at a deliberative development recruitment day, um, I wasn't going because I was interested in in being recruited, but I I just happened to be there. Um, And I couldn't escape this sort of weird feeling that perhaps um, while while I'm really curious about this model of development, I think it's great, 
I can't um, get over the fact that maybe these groups um, become, or these these projects could become um, these sort of weird socially exclusive cults. <laughs> because there were there were questions about, and I asked a question in the in the tea break where we were um, having some sort of. Um, and I, I won't, I won't, I won't go into the food. But anyway, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was, yeah. Um, and I asked a question about, okay, so what if one of you? I mean, you've you've been in, involved in the planning, you've been to all these events, you're recruiting people. It's taken you eight years or so. Um, what if you have to move out? What? And they're like, oh, but we wouldn't. We wouldn't move out. This is what this is what we're our goal. I'm like, well, what if something came up? Oh. Well, I guess that we would we would list it, but we would probably want to control who moves in, and then that opens up the question of okay, so you're going to have interview processes for who can move in once you move out, and I live in a block of flats that's just strata title, and I'm on the owners corporation, and if we had a say in who could move in, I, it would be a really scary thing. <laughs> so on the first point about the cult. <laughs> I think it's a genuine um, issue and I think there are multiple ways to address it. The first is what Andy's talking about, having the layering of a housing system. So if you only... And that's why we talk about deliberative development not being the only answer to this problem. The worst thing that could happen would be for politicians and governments to go away and say, great, everybody else is solving this problem for us. We do not need to invest in social or affordable housing. Worst outcome possible. So everybody that's campaigning for deliberative development also needs to be campaigning for social and affordable housing within their neighbourhoods, not, you know, outside. The second bit is the database itself needs to be set up to provide for diversity. And while I acknowledge that perhaps Nightingale isn't there yet in true diversity of of the populations that they're sort of accommodating at the moment, they have certain things in place. So, for example... You know, one of the highest um, age groups of women, of people experiencing homelessness is women over the age of 50. So they're prioritised on the list. If you're a single mother, you're going to be prioritised on the list. If you're a key service worker, if you're Indigenous, you know, all these sorts of things that make sure that where perhaps in an ordinary housing market you're going to be pushed to the side, you can perhaps be prioritised through this process. And I agree with you, without those... Uh, mechanisms in place, it's a really, really dangerous stepping stone to just creating hipster housing, which is not what the intent is. I think the opportunity for cross-subsidy is also super interesting. So if we want to look at deliberative development now, which is very much fledgling, and we look at kind of innovators within the market, that's people who have the money to put on the line. They're designers who have the skills to go out on a limb and establish a model. Now, the next natural phase of that is they upscale it and make it available for more people. So this current phase, I believe, is absolutely necessary, and there's a clear reason why it's emerged in Brunswick and Fairfield and in areas where early adopters are promoting this model. But if we can start to use this model through, say, government requiring projects to cross-subsidise and salt and pepper affordable housing through a project in return for an extra floor in height or whatever that might be, then we can start to provide for this mix. The interesting thing about these models is that they're more willing to co-locate with social housing than conventional development. So if we want to look at the Carlton housing estate or the stuff that was rolled out in the last 10 years on a number of those estates, they've got poor doors which basically means one building for the affordable housing, one for the wealthy, no integration. We've known that's not best practice for 50 years maybe now, and we're still doing it. 
because of developer attitudes towards this. Now, a Nightingale model is more than happy to put a couple of apartments on a floor and integrate them into the community. These people are more willing to make those decisions because they're the ones living there. They're not speculating on who might live there. So, yeah. Thanks, and thanks for the great question. It is also a fear I share, but that was a really great answer about it being one of many um, opportunities for changing the normal development model. Who's got another question? Come on. Yes. Hello. So my question is actually, how do you build or create community capacity for deliberative development? Or actually, what kind of communities are capable of taking part in deliberative development? Could you uh, reframe the question, please? <laughs> well, I, I kind of like the call uh, for action. So um, I am just thinking who is capable of taking part in that call? Yeah, is it truly equitable? Or do you need to have um, a certain knowledge level or a certain friendship group or access to people who live in Brunswick? Or is this actually truly an equitable process for anybody to be invo involved with? So I think what Andy was talking about before in terms of this process we're going through now being necessary is kind of pointing to the fact that at the moment you do need to be really well resourced a lot of the time in order to get one of these projects started, especially if you're doing purely a co-housing community-led project. You need to have the money to put on the ground to get it going. Pardon? 30% deposit. 30% deposit, you know. So I think that there are limitations associated with that, but... You know, you've got models in the UK where government is, um, you know, selling off land at a very low rate to provide a co-housing development. But a, I guess a conditional element of that is that that community needs to get together and provide a very high percentage, I think it's 40% for this circumstance, to be for the lowest income members of that community. So that, And then they offer alternatives such as staircasing. So perhaps if you have a 10% deposit and then another social enterprise will lend you that money so that you can staircase up to ownership. Now, we have lots of limitations associated with our taxation system and land ownership system, which really restricts that type of thing from occurring in Australia, which I hope will start to change over time as these things become more popular. Yeah, that's true. We do have shared equity, which really helps with this process. Maybe I wasn't going to talk about shared equity necessarily. I was just going to talk about who instigates the project. So the idea of access to the project, you might start to break down the community. They're not all just coming together at a node and forming around a project. And what you see, I guess, um, if you look online, there's a resource called... Oh, I forgot what it's called now. Is it cohousing.de? Yeah? Um, so this is a portal where you can go to the pub and meet 30 other people who want to do a project except that there's meetings five days a week for about 50 projects every week. Not that are all going to take off tomorrow but what you see there is a totally different types of approaches. So maybe you know you don't have the appetite for risk or to stick around for years and formulate the project but maybe you want to buy into one that's already been formed later on so that's another option that you might not have the skills or the knowledge but the access that comes through an online platform combined with face-to-face -face interaction and, and regular events can create opportunities for people to enter at different levels of the project um, but you do have to be brave and motivated and it, it does appeal to a certain type of person. Yeah, there is a group, um, Co-Housing Australia, which runs speed dating 
you know, go along, talk to somebody living in co-housing or just talk about this this kind of process that they're going through. And they're a very welcoming bunch, um, but you do need to, you know, have the confidence to go along. Um, but, you know, everything has to start from somewhere. So I guess with that community trying to be as welcoming as possible as they can be, it's a starting point. Great, thanks for the question. Anyone else? Yes. You're next to each other. You can do one after the other. Uh, my question is, I think it's interesting that Berlin is the, the example that, of the inspiration for this here. Um, because it's, I mean, Germany as a whole, but especially Berlin, there's very low levels of home ownership compared to here. I just wanted to, your opinion on the potential for this kind of deliberative development, but for rental housing. Um, can I just answer this one? I guess through our experience with the um, paddock, what uh, even though it's not a true deliberative development model, um, we have have been going through these buyers workshop process. Our the developer is um, is very very interested in diversity within the community, and he and she, because the husband and wife, they're they're. Um, I guess their priority to ensure this happens is they're going to set aside a number of the dwellings for um, the rental market. Um, and so they, they, are, they would be the owners of that dwelling within the development, but then it would be opened up to the rental market and they would prefer it if there was, say, a young family, for example, to come in there to increase divert, um, diversity and also to have rent controls on that, um, on that uh, house that they own within the development to try and, as you're saying, increase, uh, I guess, diversity into these sorts of developments. You can use the same technique, though, in terms of this idea of market matching, where you're trying to, con you know, connect producer and consumer, or in a, in a you know, pure deliberative development, they're one and the same. But, for example, a way that that could be done is that you build, you know, 15 apartments, use the homeowner's equity to finance the project, their desire for a home, but you build five more they then collectively own them and offer them for rent. That both cross-subsidises their mortgages, which is a benefit to them, but also provides rental accommodation. So in terms of using a... I think we can, again, use the same platforms, the same tools to engage renters. Because if you have the renter ready to go, they want a 10-year lease, they want to live in this community, that's a weight off the shoulder of the investor who wants to buy the apartment. So there's no reason why it can't translate. My turn. Uh, I'm a, a developer and interested to hear what you have to say about all of this. Thanks very much for sharing all of your views. Uh, what I find is really difficult being a developer is working through all the rules and regulations that apply to sites, especially in inner city Melbourne. There are new requirements being released probably every two or three months that apply. I've got about 15 consultants on one of my projects from... You know, you've got the architect, you've got the urban designer, you've got the town planner, you've got the landscape architect, then you've got your civil engineer, you've got your transport, you've got your waste management. Uh, and, and as the rules change, all of those people need to stay up to date, which requires a lot of effort on, on their part as well. How are these groups of people going to get together and have access to the skills and resources that I can only just afford in a, in a more sort of private and capitalist model of development. And, you know, consultants aren't, aren't free 
and even if they were to volunteer their time, I think it would be extraordinarily difficult. And as can be seen from the Nightingale VCAT case, that things don't always go very well and how will they manage those pitfalls? So one of the biggest challenges with getting um, a deliberative development or a co-housing development off the ground is getting the people within that team to acknowledge that they need to spend, that, that there is risk associated with it and that they do need to spend a little bit of money, in some cases, you know, a reasonable amount of money, perhaps too much money, in order to get their planning permit, in order to get their project. And that is actually one of the biggest challenges. Um, and I guess that goes back to my point before about perhaps if we had a planning system that was more geared towards prioritising the non-speculative model, then we could factor some of those elements into an assessment process that favoured that process. Now, that might not be so great for you, <laughs> um, but I feel like there are certain benefits there. And even just in terms of parameters, of setting more um, concrete parameters, because the uncertainty of the system at the moment is not helping anyone, and I think there's a lot of room for improvement there. That's, I think the key comment there is about a level playing field, and the challenge, as you say, is your consultants are having to change what they know on a month-by-month -month basis. And even from council to council, the regulations are so different. So I think, you know, you can think of planning as a bunch of regulations trying to achieve things, or you can think about them as a way of limiting the amount of investment on a property. And I think they're doing... They're very unsuccessful at doing that at the moment. It actually promotes a cowboy culture in developers because to outbid a foreign investor for a site, you've got to pay an exorbitant amount of money. You're geared to the hill, then your consulting costs. It kind of makes it harder for everyone. So the same improvements to the planning system that would help speculative developers would also de-risk the process for deliberative development. Deliberative development is, you know, we talked about uh, uh, sorry, settlement risk earlier for speculative developers. What settlement risk is to speculative, planning risk is to deliberative development. So it's a real challenge. Yeah, land value is an interesting one because there, it seems to me the Nightingale model, for example, um, has a density cap on it because you only want, what, 40-odd residents per building? So that sets your density at six levels or something. So it's only feasible then to develop in the suburbs. You couldn't build that building in the city with the capital city's own land and the expense that that would have. It's also that groups have proven unwilling to invest in those types of projects. You give, you give people the choice of what sort of building they want and they won't choose a tower. That's, been the, that's not an opinion. That's, I guess, what the message is that's coming out of it. The other issue for us is partly about a desired community scale. It's also about finance. Once we exceed a certain level of capital investment, the proportion of what's called a sophisticated investor, they become a dominant shareholder in the investment of the project. And that means the architect loses control. So keeping the capital investment under a certain level allows us to have a diverse group of investors backing the site acquisition and the early consultancy costs, and it allows us to maintain a kind of democratic process. So that's another factor with the land value and, and scale, maybe. Um, I'd like to ask a question, if that's OK, unless anyone else has got one. Um, after, OK, thanks. <laughs> um, I want to just go back to the framework that you were talking about, um, the initials of which I have forgotten. And LBC. LBC, Livability. Living Building Challenge. Living Building Challenge Framework. And the idea of applying that kind of landscape architecture lens to a development and trying to lead with the landscape. How do you think that could be interpreted within medium density or high density environments? Um, well, I think the LBC... Um, typically works for 
a high density um, situation anyway. Um, the, uh, the, I think the way it's focused seems to be at um, kind of at the more sort of urban level projects. So um, if we look at the urban agricultural um, calculations that they put into their um, into the into the framework, it really um, the the less dense the the um, development, the more land has to be given over to um, agriculture, for instance. Um, as you come into the more, the more density, so there's an in, basically an encouragement to um, increase density. The more dense the development, the less um, proportion of agriculture becomes part of that. So it's kind of it's designed to sort of scale with um, with density. Um, so I think, yeah, I think does that answer some of your question? <laughs> <laughs> well, from um, certainly, I think uh, I, I keep looking at sort of um, uh, thinking of projects like uh, the children's hospital design and how that probably a lot of the biophilic principles in um, LBC, for instance, will be um, sort of at least informally included in that project. So uh, orientation to, to nature, bringing light into the building, life into the building. Um, looking at sort of uh, natural patterns, trying to bring um, non-uniform patterns into um, architectural spaces. I think generally opening up um, architecture with more light and sort of um, awareness of, of the sort of environmental um, impact. So from a landscape architect point of view, the more dense it gets, I guess the less our sort of traditional role um, is there. But um, I think it... Uh, certainly will change the sort of appearance of buildings and the way they feel in the city. That's my understanding anyway. Yeah, they'll feel great. <laughs> if, if I could respond to that question too, I think that you would have the opportunity to use espalier planting for fencing or something like that. And in the city, there's this preoccupation with kind of screening everything and private open space. If you want to be naked you need to go somewhere more remote and live that lifestyle. You live in the city, put clothes on, or, <laughs> or just be an exhibitionist. Or not. That's, yeah. um, my question, there seems to be a lot of discussion around um, developers needing to be courageous and individuals needing to be courageous, but how do we make the councils be more courageous? Because they're the ones that hold on to their car parking rules just and ignore everything else. And like you said, that everything kind of works backwards from that and that is what has got us to this point. So how do we make councils pull their finger out? Um, well, for our experience for the paddock project... Um, specifically the Mount Alexander Council in Castlemaine, it was all about dialogue. So right from the get-go, when we were master planning the site, the project, we were talking to the council and we were telling them we're working to this framework, we're going to be doing things that you haven't seen before, um, it's going to challenge some of the people within the council, um, it's going to challenge your engineers, it's going to challenge your traffic engineer, um, it's going to challenge your landscape officer and your parks officer, so let's all get in a room and let's have a dialogue. And we had maybe three meetings with the council prior to submitting the town planning. We had a community consultation meeting, which wasn't, a, wasn't necessarily a sales meeting. It was more about 
community awareness. So the council was could see that we're trying to engage in the broader community and we weren't just looking at our own, our own site and our own bottom line. Um, and in the end we got our permit and it probably did, it did go around the table a few times but I think that dialogue was probably the first place to start. Uh, and now if another project comes through that municipality of a similar kind of challenging um, or from a challenging trajectory, they'll be able to take it on board a lot easier. So I guess that's that's my opinion on I guess where to start with council. Well, Vermont Park was difficult. It was the only one done under cluster subdivision because the council were very restrictive on what was allowed, and that's a classic example of uh, reactionary council. And uh, it was the garbage trucks that basically determined the road layout. It wasn't the cars; it was the garbage trucks. And anybody that does site planning those garbage trucks does determine your design, which is most unfortunate. I think um, like that, that sort of multiple layers that exist within a local authority. So um, like traditionally it's been local government that's actually been the one pushing and, and for change. So Moreland and Maribyrnong are a really good example for that, for pushing for better apartment design. You know, Banyul, um, Darabin, Moreland, Port Phillip, they're like ESD. So, but then there's the state government layer on top of that as well so that they can dictate, sort of funnel through from a planning perspective. But I think um, what my co-speaker, whose name I've forgotten, was just saying about dialogue is really, really important. So as an, ex sorry, as an example, um, a couple of months ago, I called the council planner at Moreland who has dealt with all the Nightingale projects with us yeah, I won't say her name, don't worry. Um, and I was looking at this site and doing some due diligence and I saw that it had a really shitty approval on it. And I saw that she approved it. You know, so I gave her a call and I said, oh, you know, this is it's pretty shit. <laughs> and, um, and she said, well, what are you thinking of doing with it? And I said, oh, I'm looking at it for a nightingale. And she said, oh, thank God. So that's two and a half years after that email I sent her at midnight almost in tears and so that took a really long time to sort of establish that relationship with her and Nightingale have done a really really good of good job of establishing trust with Moreland City Council and that has taken a really long period of time but again this is the advantage of doing a non-speculative development you're going to put pen to paper you're going to do what you say you're going to do and so often council planners get burned because people say they're going to do something and they don't and, it, like, it's a really tricky conundrum and I really feel like this deliberative, non-speculative model has a, has a really big role to play in trying to reduce, reduce that fear from the council planner perspective. Can I just add one thing to that? Um, I think you mentioned before um, generosity of these types of projects and I think that LBC will come forward with um, perhaps a sort of a generosity to the rest of the um, community which wouldn't exist in a development like that otherwise... For instance, um, you know, part of the, the framework is about in, you know, introducing or keeping um, connectivity through the site for, for public, for instance, like certain aspects of the site are kind of a more open and generous to the public. So I, f I feel like um, that it's something in those frameworks might be sort of supporting that, that overall sort of acceptance by council. Okay, I think, oh, Rodney, you're about to speak. No, I think it's basically evolution. I, I think back at Vermont Park, it was number three in the evolution. You had uh, Elliston at Rosanna, which was a conventional subdivision done very differently. Then you had Winter Park 
and then you had Vermont Park, and now Vermont Park is actually old hat, and there's an evolution, and it's, it moves on. You're going to have these barriers no matter what. You'll always feel as barriers, but it will change. You just need examples on the ground, good examples on the ground, then you move ahead. So proving things that are possible, taking small steps, showing examples. I was always told pioneers lose a lot of money. Yeah. And this, this, was, this is true. And I think of when you pioneer new things, you really, from a commercial sense, are taking a great risk. Yes. Well, I'm going to wrap it up because people keep leaving because we've gone over time. Um, but I'd like to say a massive thank you um, to Ayla, to the organisers, to the speakers, to everybody. Let's take Bridget's call to action and go home and write to people. So thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>